This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time, and we have a very interesting guy here today, Adam Piori, who's going to talk about bioengineering, how you can get rewired. It has to do with not only your body, but in some respects, your mind, and he's going to be telling us all about this research in just a moment. Welcome, Adam. We really appreciate you coming on board. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what I'm going to do is say a couple words from our sponsor, then I'm going to intro, intro Adam, and we're going to get right into it. So the first uh, relevant uh, remark here is that DHA is the Dis- Direct Health Access Laboratory. You listeners already know how much we love the reality of data here at CBJ. And today we welcome our clinical friend and our new sponsor partner, Direct Health Access Laboratory, with over 3 million studies. They're deep leaders of experience with the big picture of measuring, for example, methylation, cryptopyrrol, and copper challenges. They provide a global service with a molecular focus. Stay tuned. They're very, very interesting folks. And then you also know that we really appreciate detailed improvements of mind care at any level. And we're very pleased to welcome also, in addition, uh, our new sponsor and partner with a deep interest in fresh options to address the complexity of adolescent treatment failure nationally and internationally. For over 80 years, the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center teams in Norfolk, Virginia, provide residential care on a different level with an evolved family interpersonal and global level. You'll hear more about them during the break in the middle of this. So let me take a moment to introduce Adam to you. Uh, Adam's a very widely covered guy. He has been a journalist for years. He worked as a uh, all the way back in Cambodia. He worked for the Boston Globe, Newsweek Magazine, freelance journalist, Reader's Digest. He's a contributor to Discover Magazine, Popular Science Magazine. Uh, so he has been around. He's a very active journalist, and he's taken uh, an interest in bioengineering. And the intro is this. For millennia, humans have tried and often failed to master nature and transcend our limits in our interface with nature. But this has started to change. The new scientific frontier is the human body. The greatest engineers of our generation have turned their sights inward and their work is beginning to revolutionize mankind. His new book, The Bodybuilders, takes us on a fascinating journey into the field of <clears throat> pardon me, bioengineering, which can be used to reverse engineer, rebuild, and augment human beings, and it paints a vivid portrait of the people at its center. So what he does is he chronicles new ways the technology has retooled our physical expectations in a number of different ways, including regrowing parts of their fingers and legs in the wake of terrible traumas, and one guy who tried on a muscle suit that allowed him to pick up 90 pounds with his fingertips. And then there are these other folks that have a certain Viagra for the brain uh, with doctors trying to give mute patients the ability to communicate 
telepathically. Sounds a little woo-woo, but we're going to hear about it in just a moment. So, Adam, thank you so much for coming on board. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now, if you will, please. Sure, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, as you said, I've been a journalist for a while, um, over 20 years. I covered Congress in the 90s. I went to Iraq for Newsweek, lived in Cambodia. And um, one of the, the themes that always fascinated me was human resilience. Um, you know, I was very fascinated. In, in Cambodia, they'd been, they were emerging from 30 years of civil war, and people were rebuilding their lives. They were re- rebuilding the country. It was very inspiring. There were great stories. And when I came back from, from uh, Cambodia, I worked for Newsweek. Then, I, then when I left Newsweek, um, I stumbled across a story that sort of led me into this field of bioengineering. And, and what I realized is that in the United States, the most exciting stories of human resilience are being unleashed by, by technology, and, and they have to do with health and regaining lost function and, and even exceeding them. And, uh, so the, the, and so I've been sort of following that path for the last 10 years, writing uh, about bioengineering for popular science, MIT Technology Review, Discover, and I'm still doing that. But my book um, covers many different areas. Um, the guy that got me into this and sort of changed my, showed me what was possible was a a guy named Hugh Herr. And uh, Hugh Herr, when he was 17, was a champion rock climber. He was known all around the world, uh, and especially all around the country, for conquering um, you know, climbs that nobody had else had done. And uh, one, one day in the winter, he went ice climbing and, and, and uh, with a friend in, in New Hampshire. They wanted to climb Mount Washington, and uh, they hit a storm, and they went the wrong way on the way back down. And uh, they wandered into the wilderness, and they almost died. Um, and Hewer's legs were amputated for frostbite below his knees. Uh, and the doctors told him he'd never walk, run, or climb again. But he didn't accept that, and he began tinkering with his prosthetics. He made them seven feet long. He gave them little blades that could go into crevices in the, on, on the rock walls he wanted to climb. And, and he soon became an even better climber than he was before. And he got on 60 Minutes, and he was famous again you know, on, on all these climbing magazines. But when he would come down from the wall... You know, he'd, he'd have these these prosthetics that were no better than the peg leg that had been given to Civil War uh, fighters, you know, hundreds of years, a hundred years before. And so he began um, taking engineering classes, and he went from being a C student to an A student. And uh, eventually he went to MIT, and now he is one of the world's leading prosthetics engineers at MIT, and he's pushing the limits of what's possible. And uh, he's built what he calls wearable robots that are so close to the real thing that uh, when people who are amputees try them on, they often start to cry. And, and what's allowed this is this revolution in, in uh, technology, and he, which has allow, allowed him to reverse engineer the human leg at a resolution that would have been impossible before. There's a few hundred ligaments, tendons, bones, and muscles that go into the lower leg. And every time we take a step, we recycle about 50% of the energy from the previous step. But, you know, with the old-fashioned prosthetics, it was just dead weight, and that's one of the reasons people have back problems and, and they have an eccentric gait and they're very tired um, when they walk. And what he did is he built, he basically reverse-engineered the, all the constituent parts of the leg using motion, motion capture technology and then used um, robotics to uh, build parts that do exactly what they do. They interact in the same way, and they adjust about 500 times a second. Uh, for torque and angle and stiffness based on what the other parts are doing around them. So, uh, you know, that, that 
kind of blew my mind that that was possible. Uh, and I've been sort of following that thread into other fields of bioengineering ever since. Very, and, very um, interesting. You know, to, yeah. So then you took it over. I mean, the interest for us is, first of all, that it could be done. The very first question I know a number of, a number of us would be thinking about, is it, does that bio, does, does that whole uh, biotic activity, uh, is it charged? Does, does it have to carry a battery? Does it work on the resources of the action itself to charge itself? How does all that work? Yeah, that's one of the. That's another challenge that um, people need to overcome, which is miniaturizing power sources. So uh, it's not so. So they, that was one of the big breakthroughs was figuring out a way to have a compact power source and reduce the amount of power that was needed. It, it does have a battery, uh, and uh, so it is portable. But um, you know, if you look at like there, there's there. Technology has advanced also in upper limb prosthetics. So there's a bionic arm made by Dean Kamen's company, uh, DECA. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's compact enough. And it was funded by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Administration, right, DARPA, uh, to help because so many soldiers were amputees. And, and they, they put a lot of money into Dean Kamen's company. And the goal was to come up with a compact uh, bionic arm that was like the real thing. But... The thing you sacrifice with that is it's much less powerful than the human arm. So mm-hmm. you know, as these, as the techn- as the uh, technology for battery sources improves, uh, that will, th- those will get better as well. But right now, it's not like the six million dollar man, you know. Yeah, well, that, that's uh, very interesting. I, I don't know if you knew this, Adam and and Tiffany, our our colleague, may have told you this, but we're we're very interested in this sort of thing because we have a whole pages devoted. We have over twenty two uh, episodes that we've devoted to veterans. Uh, we see so okay. many veterans that are being overlooked and really not treated effectively by a variety of different. Uh, individuals who really yeah. kind of don't know what they're doing i mean and, and uh, i'm speaking for the the guests that have spoken to me i'm not taking a position I, all i know is that we we're overlooking things and this would be a valuable addition we'll put this on the vets page as well so that you can uh have your comments yeah. there yeah certainly I, I mean a lot of the tech so i follow this thread to look at i mean the the leg is the most um obvious and and the arm because there's fewer variables right when we're talking about the human brain we got billions of neurons and the genome there's so uh, there's billions of nucleotides and the the resolution of the technology to to model this is advancing we can't do the same thing with the brain in terms of the resolution of we can record Mm -hmm. um yet but uh but anyways um all these technologies a lot of the a lot of the most fascinating work is being funded by the the Pentagon, in part to help because of concerns over veterans. Uh, and uh, oh, yeah, I mean, it, it's in, and and some of them have been tested out, like in, in regenerative medicine, the the technology that I uh, that you mentioned, where people are regrowing fingers and trying to regrow huge chunks of muscle. Those were tested out at Brooks Medical Center. I mean, the guy in, in my who begins my chapter was he was in Iraq on an airbase hit by a mortar that killed his friend, and uh, he had a huge chunk of muscle blown out of his leg. And normally, what happens is um, is the body just pastes it over scar tissue, and and often you have to amputate. But they put this stuff in, which I can tell you about, which is 
in regenerative medicine, they put that in at Brooks Medical Center, uh, and uh, it actually grew back. Is that right? Pretty pretty remarkable. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That, that is, that's very encouraging, very exciting. So most of what you're talking yeah. about has to do with muscles and limbs and, and that sort of thing. It does arms and, and fingers and legs as well. Well, yeah. I mean, I have three sections. I have moving, and, and that's where those two stories are. The first one is, is Hugh Her, the first chapter. The second one is uh, muscles and stuff, but with genetic engineering, giving people big muscles, there's these Schwarzenegger mice, and there's even Schwarzenegger babies, babies born with mutations that give them huge muscles. And then the third chapter was regenerative medicine. But then I have a sensing section and a thinking section oh, yeah, where yeah. The, yeah. the same principle applies. Yeah, so, and, and just a lot of them are, a lot of the most fascinating work is from the military, funded by them. No, that's fantastic. Well, let me ask you this. Yeah. Because uh, in doing some of the research in our con- in preparing for this conversation, I saw a number of people that, in fact, a lot of climbers uh, who are outdoor guys seem to be uh, having uh, these various limb replacements, these artificial um, means of getting around, and they're doing uh, remarkable activities. And this guy seems to be one of them. Hugh seems to be a person who's who's actually done that. Right, yeah. I mean, he told me that um, after he first lost his legs, the doctors told him he'd never run again, and he would wake up. He would dream every night of running through the cornfields behind his parents' house, you know, with the wind in his hair, and then he'd wake up and see the stumps of his legs. Hmm. You know, he'd wake up really, really depressed. Now he jogs every day. He jogs around Walden Pond on uh, on prosthetics. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of amputees are veterans in the military who, you know, lost their limbs at the prime of their life and they still want to be active. They want to ski. They want to, um, mountain climb. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, and you've seen Oscar Pistorius, right? I mean, before yeah. he, mm-hmm. he killed his, uh, girlfriend, he was, uh, in the Olympics, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and the, those are only improving. Some, some people I've talked to have said that they think that in the not-too-distant future, a double amputee will break the world speed record. You know, they'll be faster than Usain Bolt. That is totally interesting. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. You know, let me, yeah. let me take a moment here for this break that I was talking about with our sponsors, and I'm going to ask you a question when we come back, because this is Core Brain Journal, and one of the things I want to tease apart with you a little bit and get people into the book and help help them begin to understand it is the applications that you've researched in terms of some of these things that I said a moment ago are a little on the woo side you know telepathy right. and and enhanced brain yeah, function yeah. and thinking because that would be something that I know our listeners would be very interested in so when we come back sure. I'm going to ask that question if you don't mind and for right now we'll take a quick sure. break and we'll get those sponsors on the table and we'll come right back Well, folks, you know as well as I do that psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medication trials and those very, very brief hospitalizations, may prove insufficient to deal at home with the complexity of troubled children and and those adolescents from 6 to 17 years old. Improved care, those next mandatory steps, should include a more comprehensive approach to address those multiple levels of challenges, from family to peers to school diagnostically from defiance to depression on every level for families 
including military families internationally. The Barry Robinson Center's 32-acre open college-like campus in Norfolk, Virginia, provides safety and security and clean, comfortable living. How do we know? We refer folks over there all the time, strongly endorse what they're doing. So for further information and informed interview, connect at this page, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing, now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's dhalab.com forward slash core. Well, Adam, here we are again, and we're going to come back to that question because we have some listeners that are burning up with curiosity about this because we have measurable means of actually fixing brain function. And one of the things we talk about so often here at Core Brain Journal and the experts we interview is is using the technology to really understand the evolution of brain science, the applications and measurement. One of our sponsors is a laboratory that gets into the molecular and cellular physiology that's available right there through LabCorp, almost in your mm-hmm. in your town, Possum Hollow, Alabama, you can get the testing done and figure out what's going on with your transporter proteins and your presynaptic nerves. It's amazing. So let's go and hear from you a little bit about your research and what you've come up with in terms of some of those broader applications in thinking and mind science, if you don't mind. Uh, sure, like research uh, things or or. Um, or- Whatever applications you have hot on your head right there that you think might be of interest regarding uh, brain activity, mind science, in any respect okay. whatsoever. Yeah, well, uh, okay, so, um, you know, the, the, the challenge with the brain, of course, is, is, uh, is getting information out of it, right? And uh, so, so as I was saying, you know, with, with Hugh Herr, he's using motion capture technologies, the same kind of those, I don't know if you've ever seen those tiny little silver balls that maybe you see in the commercial for EA Sports with LeBron James uh, or Avatar even. He used those to record with motion capture cameras how the constituent parts of the leg fit together. And then he built a, a mathematical model that could be put on a computer chip and emulated with, with, uh, with robotic parts. So with the brain, you know, we can't, um, there, instead of a few hundred parts to try and measure and put in a mathematical algorithm, there's uh, billions of parts. And we don't yet have the sensing technology yet. Just uh, a story I wrote a couple weeks ago was for the MIT Technology Review about DARPA, which again is from the Department of Defense. They have a, they just announced grantees for something called the Neural Engineering System Design mm-hmm. uh, 
program, and they're doling out $60 million to try and get people to try and figure out a way to be able to record from more neurons at once, you know, so that we could get the kind of data you need to understand how all the parts of the brain move together. Mm. But, you know, to examine the far reaches of how far we've gone, I wanted to look at what you call a woo thing, which is, it seems like a totally uh, un- improbable possibility that we could actually decode imagined speech. And so I went to, I, I wrote about this guy. Well, first of all, I wrote about people who were locked in who had um, Lou Gehrig's disease, because I tried to, you know, I, I, I like to tell stories. I'm, I'm a narrative storyteller. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I always try to find people who, so I, I love the Hugh Her story, because there was so much drama. Um, and uh, I tried to find people who were, were most affected by this. So I interviewed people who were locked in. So I wrote about a guy named David Jane, who's lost the total ability to even speak and what volunteered as a subject. But uh, actually, this program that I wrote about was started by a guy in the Army Research Office, and his name was Elmer Schmeisser. And he uh, had grown up reading science fiction, and and there's also in the movie Firefox, there's something called a thought helmet, and he had read about a thought helmet in some science fiction book. And, uh, and the idea was that in the future we could have a helmet that could decode your imagined thoughts and convey it to somebody else who's wearing another helmet and, and it would, it would, uh, you know, decode the words and speak them into that person's ear. Mm. So it would be computer assisted telepathy. And the idea is, you know, like, uh, if, if, the special forces were hunting uh, Osama bin Laden in the caves of Tora Bora. They could they could just move stealthily and silently and and just communicate. You know, you go left, I'll go right. Yeah, I, I hear something over there. And mm-hmm. so uh, he wanted to see if this was possible. So this guy Gerwin Schalk was using a brain recording technique called ECOG, where um, and it's used with epilepsy patients. They put electrodes on top of it. They remove the skull, the top of the skull. They put these electrodes on the top of the naked cortex and they, they wait until they take the person off the seizure medication and they wait until the person has a seizure so they can triangulate and locate exactly where they need to remove, you know, what part of brain and severe epileptic patients they need to remove to stop the seizures. So the whole time that the patients are just sitting there with these electrodes on their brain waiting to have a seizure. So Gerwin Schalk this is who he experimented with. He began to, he would go in and he would, he would do these various experiments, uh, you know, asking them to imagine speaking a sentence. And then he would record all the data that he could get. And it's, it's millions of variables, many more than, than Hugh Hur uses. Um, and, uh, you know, he's got to sort through signals from all the brains. So it's actually billions of, of variables. And, uh, and you would run it to a computer and you got to sort out all the noise and try and figure out if there's anything there that differs or that you can, uh, you can connect to a specific sentence or word, and if you can tell between two of them. And what, what, uh, what Gerwin Schalk and the other people on the project discovered is that apparently when we imagine speaking, we send one signal to the motor cortex to tell the articulators in our, our, our sorry, when we speak, we send one uh, signal to the motor cortex to tell our mouth and our tongue how to make the noise. Yes. But we send another copy to the auditory cortex, and this is called an efference copy as an error correction mechanism, so that we can hear and compare whether what we're saying matches what we want to say. And, and what they discovered is that even when you just imagine speaking, when you hear a little voice in your head, 
you actually are hearing a little voice in your head. That efferent copy is going mm-hmm. to the auditory cortex. Interesting. And, and that they could actually detect it. Um, so, and once they did that, sometimes they can tell between two different sentences. Now, the, the resolution is not, you know, you can't read somebody's brain, um, you know, um, instantaneously. These are pattern recognition algorithms that, are, that have to be trained, and they have to be trained on what to ignore, and, and our resolution, because we don't have the resolution, you know, we need something like what DARPA uh, is creating to get, you know, to get the, enough variables to, to be able to, and everybody's brain is different, you know, because the connections in the brain change. And, um, but you can actually train a pattern recognition program to beat um, what would be chance and figure out which of two sentences you're speaking. And, and so Gerwin Schalk has continued to upgrade this. He's working now with um, neuroscientists at Berkeley. And he did something, um, and so I, I was watching him do this with epilepsy patients, watching him, you know, have them imagine sentences and collecting all the data, which he was going to send to Berkeley, and they're going to refine the algorithms. But he did something that kind of blew my mind, which is, you know, it wasn't imagined speech, but he, he uh, played... Pink Floyd's, well, he played a, a song, right, to all these different patients while he recorded the signals from their auditory corks. And then um, with, the, with his collaborators in Berkeley, they basically used pattern recognition program to be able to, without hearing the song themselves, record the activity in the auditory cortex and translate the activity and the patterns of firing of specific neurons back into sound and he played me that sound, and I could tell it was a song from Pink Floyd's The Wall. Oh it really gosh. blew my mind. Yeah. It was a guitar solo that was recorded from somebody's brain. I got you. So I mean, it's a fancy, uh, fancy demonstration project that you couldn't really use outside the lab, but, you know, it gets at the potential of this. But someday they, it, it actually is plausible. Once we have the resolution that we can do what Hugh Herr is doing with the leg, if we had the resolution to do that, with the with the neurons of the brain, we could actually have computer assisted telepathy. So that's just that's one example. Well, stop right there. Let me get a little point of clarification because I want to make sure I get this in the show notes. But I got Gerwin. Is G E R W I N? Is it S H A L K? S C H A L K. Okay, and then the DARPA. That's an acronym. I don't. I'm not familiar with that. What is that acronym for? Uh, let's see. It's the Pentagon's, people call it the Pentagon's Blue Sky Research Program. Okay. Um, but, uh, so it is... I'll look it up then. You you don't have it right on the top of your head. Defense, it's, no, here it is. Defense Advanced Research Projects Administration, comma, research. I got you. Uh, they, they invented the internet and GPS and, uh, many different things. They, they have tons of money and they dole it out for these sort of things that nobody else thinks is possible. Wow. You know, and and so they're always funding these hardcore things like like the like regrowing a limb, you know, or you know, any 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 uh anything that seems totally out there, they're the ones who are often funding. Well, it. that sounds And they're funding academics. So now are you a freelance person right now or what what are you actually doing? How do you how do you keep yourself? I mean, obviously, you're a, a curious guy, and you're writing, and you're thinking, and you're communicating, and you've written a book. Um, 
Yeah. So are you well, my, under a steady kind of situation income-wise, or are you a coach? What What do you actually do to keep yourself yeah, keep no, food I, on the I, table? Well, I was uh, I was on staff at Newsweek. Like I said, I, I, I went to Iraq in 2003 for them and spent some time there. Uh-huh. And then I left and went freelance, and then I was hired as uh, eventually – the last job I had was, I think, in 2009 as a features editor at Reader's Digest. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was laid off after a year because Reader's Digest was bankrupt and Newsweek uh, around that time had been sold for a dollar. Oh. And, uh, and I just decided uh, I could make a better living just being a freelancer. And mm-hmm. it's true, all the places I write for, all my editors have been fired. They're always oh getting gosh. rehired at new places. But um, so I write, um, I make a living writing. You know, I write... Um, like I said, I write um, for a wide array of publications. I'm working on two stories for Business Week right now oh, for their gosh. future tech issue. Um, I, I'm on the masthead of Popular Science and Discover because I write long narratives for them. Like I said, I had a story in MIT Tech Review a couple weeks ago. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I know a lot of people. I know what a good story is, and I. I come up and t- with it and pitch people. Well, I got another. Um, uh, I got a story for you right here in front of everybody. We just interviewed uh, Stephanie Seneff at uh, MIT, and you're already over there, and she's doing. No, I'm, you, you, you. Well, I, I, you I there. I don't work for them. I just freelance for them. But freelance, um, but okay. I'll, yeah, tell me what. Well, she's doing. at MIT. She's at the. Uh, She's a computer scientist and a biomedical researcher on autism, and and uh, has very has very interesting copy on uh, Roundup and glyphosate as it relates to brain function on all kinds of different uh, biomedical levels. And because you're interested in technology, she's and you can just contact her real quickly. Obviously, you'll be able to, you can come to my um, my website. She's at Core Brain Journal dot com forward slash let me get the number of but you you would want to connect her because there would be some things that would be of interest to you there she's just such a she's a 136 corebrainjournal.com forward slash 136 and she's uh, dealing with autism actually the whole change the changes that are going with brain science and uh, it's up your alley because you're interested in technology and the way these things change and and uh, she's she's there. a researcher over there, and and uh, it might be something for you to consider. Sure, I'll check it out. So the the bottom line on the book to to get back to your book, I think it offers what you're saying is, and I think it does. It sounds like it offers a tremendous amount of hope for people who were very depressed because they have some kind of damage from some kind of physical malady, and then pull themselves back together with these different. Uh, techniques and um, prosthetic devices that actually take them into a completely different level of uh, higher level of functioning yeah I mean it's it's um, in some cases that's true in some cases it's more theoretical you know um, I was interested in in basically learning what we're what it is we're learning about how the human body and mind work where our limits lie and how we might overcome them and uh, and I wanted to understand you know how you know, you hear all this buzz about the ethics of these things, and also what it, what we're going to do. And it's it's re- it was really hard for me to evaluate what was actually possible. So I went out. You know, I'm a, I've been a, investigating things my whole career. So I went out and and just talked to the people on the front lines. So you know, uh, so for this prosthetic, um, there are advanced prosthetics um, 
some insurance will pay for it. So they're still getting economies of scale and bringing down the cost of it. And, and in fact, um, you know, although it feels like the real thing, it's not as good as the real thing, and it won't be as good as the real thing until they learn how to connect it directly to the brain, you know, which is something that engineers, bioengineers at University of Pittsburgh are working on, because you need direct sensory feedback. Um, you need a sense of touch, and people are actually trying to do that at Pittsburgh, that, and there's actually, um, and, and you also want to connect it to the motor cortex, which they haven't done yet. They've done this in the lab, but uh, as, uh, as one guy said to me, he said, you know, you could control, presume, you could conceivably control the movement of a wheelchair just with your brain by connecting it to the motor cortex in the lab, but you wouldn't want to drive it on the edge of a cliff or in traffic right now until that happens. <laughs> right. I, I get the picture, it. yeah. Ouch. But, but uh, I mean, the VA has, I think the VA actually has purchased Hugh Hur's leg. It's called the biome, I think, for some uh, vets. And I think, you know, a lot of vets are probably aware of, of how fast these technologies are advancing. You know, and, and there's been consolidation in the industry. I think your company was recently bought by a German company, and they're working to bring down the costs. Um, and then, you know, like some of the other stuff, like the regenerative medicine now, that's another story that I tell, which I found fascinating, where um, the, this doctor, at, again, at the University of Pittsburgh, he was, he was just experimenting with heart. He actually wanted to find an artificial aorta that wouldn't be attacked by the body's immune system. Mm-hmm. So he took a dog, and you could never get this, uh, you can never do this nowadays, but he took a dog and he took a part of the dog's intestine and used it as um, a, to be an artificial aorta. And he just wanted to see, um, uh, you know, whether, um, I don't know what he wanted to see, I guess. Whether well, it could <laughs> be done, yeah. He, he, yeah, whether it could be done, and and he came in the next day expecting the dog would have bled out, and the dog was wagging his tail, and he kept waiting, and the dog was fine, and the dog lived many years, and but you know after a couple months he did it to other dogs, and then he cut them open, and he was amazed when he looked, there was no sign of the intestine; it had been somehow transformed into aorta, oh and he gosh. thought that he was crazy. Oh my god! Uh, but then. What, what it turned out that what happened, and then you know it turned out what happened is, and he verified that it had transformed. What happened is, apparently there's uh, this layer, you know, uh, if you use, and he now he uses pigs' intestines, right? Because there's there's plenty of it. Um, you take this something like the intestine. If you remove all the the the, the foreign tissue from the person from the the donor, the pig or whatever. You're left with the the scaffolding that holds everything together, oh, yeah. and they just grow and people right over. Thought yeah. that, yeah, the the epithelium. People thought that this epithelial level, I think, is uh, layer. I think is what it's called. They thought that that's just what it was, scaffolding. But it turns out that when you put that in the body, the body begins to break it down, and embedded in that scaffolding is a whole bunch of signaling agents, some of which are called cryptic pe- peptides, and when those are released gradually into the system, they summon stem cells to come and to rebuild. And they also, um, they also release some, sort of, some signaling agents that suppress the normal scarring response. So from, mm. evolution, from, from an evolutionary perspective, of course, it was much more advantageous when you had a big enough wound to immediately paste it over with scar tissue so that you don't get an infection. Yeah. But now, you know, in our current society, if you can suppress that 
that scar scarring, then the body can do its work and it can rebuild that part. So well, he began to do this. He's, and and he's um, and and one of his uh, one of his collaborators actually had a brother who worked was a Vietnam vet and worked in a model shop. Was retired and sliced off his fingertip with mm-hmm. a plane propeller. Yeah. And his brother told him, you know, here I'm going to send you some of this powder. Put it on your fingertip. And he put it on and he regrew his fingertip. And yeah. and this this was you know this was a holy cow story that got international attention. You know and, and brought a lot of attention to this guy and. And, uh, you know, he's, he's continued to work on this, and there's all sorts of other things that we're learning about stem cells and how to manipulate them and control them and make them sort of do our bidding to rebuild parts of the body. Um, so, and I, I went down to, so, and there's a lot of crazy science that, that concerns people, you know, like you can't just put stem cells anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people don't know what they're doing, but uh, one guy, I wrote this article, I originally wrote about this guy, his name was Steve Badalak for Discover Magazine a few years ago and uh, and like i said they had actually test he's doing a study on large muscle loss the the amount of muscle that you would lose in a leg that would normally be you know sort of catastrophic mm-hmm. and uh, and they tested this out in brooks medical center on this one guy initially and that guy regained all his function in his leg so i was i wrote about this for discover and uh, and I think the trial is still going on um, with Steve Badalak in, in Pittsburgh and a number of other institutions at the University of Pittsburgh. But I wrote about this, and um, there was this trauma surgeon named Eugenio Rodriguez down in Delray Beach, Florida. And uh, there was uh, some some one of his patients had some sort of disease, and and uh, his father read about it and brought him this article. So he ordered some of this stuff from this company. It's called Acel, and. Uh, they got it approved by the FDA through some loophole, like uh, you can use it off-label. So it's 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 approved as a patch, you know, mm-hmm. to cover up a wound, but yeah. you can also, uh, you can buy it and use it for something else. So this guy, Eugenio Rodriguez, tested it out on his patient. He was skeptical. Um, and now he uses it. He, he's, and, and I went, I flew down to see him. He introduced me to a couple people. One kid who was going to have an amputation, because he used it on a patient and it worked. And then he got on TV and then so other nurses, and so now people go to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But he introduced me to this kid who got in a car accident. The, the nurses told him, he, the doctors told him he was going to get his leg amputated. He started to cry. One of the nurses said, oh, I heard about this guy. Let me, you know. Give it a so shot. They, they called yeah. him in, and it worked for him. That's why. And, uh, I met that kid. And well, so, Adam, so these things are sort of filtering in. So interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I hate to interrupt you because I'm really, we're kind of zooming on this thing right now, but I have another appointment that I have to get to, unfortunately. But I want to take a okay. moment to thank you so much, and we'll put all this together. We'll put it in show notes. I was taking notes madly over here to try to get as much of this done as possible. And, uh, you know, after we publish it, Feel free after you look it over. If you feel like you want to add something or change it, we'd be happy to do it because uh, you've added a lot on that weren't that that uh, information that wasn't in your original notes. So I really appreciate it. Great. So thank you very much. Uh-huh. You have a good one. And something else comes up, let's get in contact again. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. 
One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.